0: The ironic thing is where we begin is where we stay during the whole race. And we find in Proverbs 1, verse 7, and in Proverbs 9, verse 10, those are the two texts that we're looking at today. The highest form of wisdom and knowledge is the fear of the Lord, or as the text says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then, over in chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I heard of a man who was driving his car and he got a flat tire, and just happened that he had the flat tire right outside of an insane asylum. There was a fence dividing the asylum and the man who had the flat tire, and As he got out to fix the tire, he noticed that there was somebody from the insane asylum, an inmate, if you will, as an onlooker, watching the man fix the car. The guy got out, took the tire off the car in question to put the spare on, took the nuts of the wheel off and placed them in the hubcap of the tire. Without thinking, he accidentally tipped the hubcap. The nuts rolled down into the nearest sewer, and they were lost. Now there's the guy by the side of the road, he's got a tire off, no nuts to put the wheel on, and he's scratching his head thinking, now what am I going to do? The inmate from the insane asylum speaks up. He says, what you ought to do is take one nut off of all of the three remaining wheels, and you'll have enough strength in all of the wheels to place the tires on, get to the nearest filling station, get the tire fixed, and you can buy new nuts when you get there. The man fixing the tire looked up and said, Now that's amazing. Why didn't I think of that? Here you are in the institution, I'm out here, and you thought of it. The guy said, Look, I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid, all right? (laughs) The book of Proverbs was written so that you won't lead a stupid life, but that you will live wisely and live godly in Christ Jesus. To do that, you have to begin at the starting line. You have to start at the beginning, which is what this message today is called. Start at the beginning. And you start with the fear of the Lord. You don't start by saying, I am determined to be wise and to be knowledgeable. You don't get there by stroking your chin in a conversation so as to appear like, wow, you're really smart and wise. It begins with the fear of the Lord. The thing about Proverbs we notice is that virtually every relationship that you could have in life is represented in this book somehow. The relationship you have with your family, the relationship you have with friends, the relationship you have at work. But the most important relationship is what this book begins with and continues in, and that is our relationship with God. And right off the bat and looking at verse 7, we see there's a relationship between God and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The ultimate knowledge is not quantum physics. The ultimate knowledge is not technological computer knowledge. The ultimate knowledge is the knowledge of God. For it says, And knowledge of God, in chapter 9, verse 10, is understanding. Now, that's contrary to what many people suppose Christianity is all about. They think, well, if you become a Christian, you have to somehow dumb down yourself. You have to check your brains at the door, so to speak, and take a blind leap of faith out into darkness. There's no smarter step you can take than to walk with God. When Harvard University was founded back east, the inscription or the motto above its sign was the inscription in Latin, Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, which means truth for Christ and for the church. The sign was an inscription of three books that were opened up. And one of those books was facing down to show the limitation of human knowledge. Now, in recent decades, things have changed at Harvard. It has become liberal. God has been ruled out of the equation, so to speak. And they've changed the insignia a little bit. They have three books, and that third book that was facing down showing the limitation of human knowledge is facing up, showing the unlimited human potential. And the new motto is simply veritas, truth. The quest for truth. But it's the quest for truth now apart from God. And though technology and knowledge, acquisition of such, is admirable, apart from God, the Bible calls that foolishness. As it says at the end of verse 7, "...but fools despise wisdom and instruction." The context is that that comes from God. So greater technology, greater information, doesn't necessarily make a greater person. A great person, one that begins at the right place, is one who has the fear of the Lord. Now, this is sort of a topical study today. There is a verse here and a verse in chapter 9, verse 10, but there are many other verses in the book of Proverbs. So I want to share with you about this fear of God a few things. First of all, the fear of the Lord is prominent in this book. And then we're going to see that the fear of the Lord is preeminent. Finally, the fear of the Lord is productive. It does something for you. Uh, Verse 7 is the first mention of the fear of the Lord. Down in verse 29 is the second mention. Because they hated knowledge, did not choose the fear of the Lord. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5 says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And we'll stop there because there are at least 18 references to the fear of the Lord in this book alone. So the fear of the Lord is prominent in the book of Proverbs. And it's prominent in the Bible in general. If you were to count them up, you'd have at least 54 different occasions where the phrase fear of the Lord or fearing God is mentioned in the Bible. So it's got to be important. The question is, what does it mean? You know, these days, if you say, you should have the fear of the Lord, people think, what are you, nuts? That's outdated. This is a modern society. We have political correctness. You don't fear God anymore. God is repackaged. So it's important that we understand exactly what the fear of the Lord is. To do that, we need to know what the fear of the Lord is not. The fear of the Lord is not a superstitious terror of God, where you're always running around like the lion in the Wizard of Oz, scared of Oz himself, scared that somehow you're going to be pounced on. Yet, that's how many people think of God. There's people all over who think that God is an angry, vengeful, narrow-minded God with His arms folded and He's got creases in His forehead. He's like deity with an attitude. Now, the ancient Greeks thought of their gods precisely as such. The gods of the Greeks were whimsical, they were capricious, you never knew where you stood with them, thus you would always live in terror of the gods. There was the god of the stream, the god of the valley, the god of the hills, the god of the ocean, the god of the natural disasters. They didn't like each other in the Greek pantheon. And as a human being, living sort of in the midst of these capricious gods, you didn't know exactly how they thought about you from one day to the next. So that made you very nervous. And your ultimate objective in life, if you lived with the belief system of the Greek gods, is how can I placate them? How can I make them happy today at me so that they won't get mad at me and destroy me? One of the myths of the Greek gods shows the battle between Zeus, which is sort of the kingpin god, and Prometheus, one of the lesser gods. And as the story goes, Prometheus had an element of human kindness, that is, loved mankind enough. Seeing mankind in distress, mankind shivering in the cold, decided to give the gift of fire to warm man. When Zeus found out that Prometheus dared to be kind to men, he chained Prometheus to a rock island in the midst of the Adriatic Sea and commanded the vultures to come out and tear out his liver. That's how they lived, thinking these are the gods that I serve. They're infantile. They are hostile one toward another. And so they always lived in dread or terror of them. Today I find people that live in that kind of superstitious dread of God. Have you ever met someone who would talk about a blessing and then they feel almost embarrassed about the blessing and then they start thinking, oh man, I hope God doesn't take it away. My life is going good. Oh, I'm sure that troubles around the corner. God's going to take away this blessing. You know that back in Germany and Holland where that mindset really came from as far as our culture is concerned, people lived that way. Let's say a couple guys were walking through the woods and they met each other. Let's call them, just for fun, Hans and Franz. (laughs) And they're walking through the woods and Hans meets Franz and says, Oh, Franz, I just bought a new house. It's very good. I got it for a good price too. And Franz would say, Oh, Hans, that is good. I just got a, a, a wife and she's very good. I am very blessed suddenly they would realize their mistake. They've been talking about their blessing out in the open in the forest. You see, in those days, the ancient Germans and those who lived in Holland believed that the gods lived in the forest trees. And that if they heard that humans became happy or blessed, they would become angry and jealous and seek to destroy or steal their blessing. And so Hans and Franz would quickly run over to the nearest tree and start... Knocking on it. That's where we get the term knock on wood. And you'll hear a person say, Oh, yeah, life is going great. Knock on wood. There's people who live with that same stupid superstition that God is a vengeful, terrible person who seeks to destroy life rather than to bless it. That's not how Jesus taught us. He said, Up to this point, you haven't asked anything. Ask that your joy may be full. And when you pray, said Jesus, say, Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's a relationship not based on terror, but based on love. And the fear of the Lord does not mean an unhealthy terror, rather it means a healthy reverence. That's what the term fear of the Lord means. In verse 7, the phrase, fear of the Lord, is the Hebrew, Yirat Yahweh, which means to have reverence for someone like a child for his parents. Back in the book of Leviticus, God said, children, honor, Yirat. Have a reverence for, fear your mother and father. Not that the child should say, dad's coming home, mom's coming home, I'm so scared, but rather a healthy reverence. So here's a working definition of the fear of the Lord. Reverential awe that produces humble submission to a loving God. And you need all three of those elements to have a biblical definition. Reverential awe that produces loving submission or humble submission to a loving God. Now the only fright or terror... That would be involved in that relationship is that because I love and respect Him so much, I am now afraid that I may somehow displease God or embarrass God's name, bringing shame to His holy name. I love Him so much, I don't want to sin against Him. Rather, I want to please Him. God is the Creator, I'm the creation. God is the Father, I'm the child. God is the Master, I am the servant. So I give reverence to God, He is reverend. By the way, as a P.S., the only time the Bible uses the word reverend with a D is God. Not reverend skip, but reverend God. Holy and reverend is His name. That's why I don't like people calling me reverend. I don't want to take God's name. Let God have His name. He's to be revered. I'm just a peon whose life should be revolving around Him. So, a person who fears the Lord is a person whose aim in life is to please the Lord. We want to please God. That's an important thought, and I fear it's been overlooked by a lot of people. God does not exist to serve you. That's not God's job in life. God is not a genie in the lamp where you take him off the shelf in time of trouble and you rub it and think good thoughts. And now God's going to make you happy and please you. God's life doesn't revolve around you. Your life must revolve around God. This universe is not a cosmic playpen to give you pleasure. But the Bible says all things were created, Revelation 4, for God's pleasure. Your life was meant to give pleasure to your Creator. Now, that's why Paul the Apostle described the difference. He cut the cake, and he said, Okay, this is where you live to please God. Now, let me describe the unbelieving world. And in Romans chapter 3, he described that unbelieving world. He says, There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who goes God's way. They've all turned aside. They've gone their own way. And he wrapped it up by saying, There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, they don't care about pleasing God. They care about pleasing them. Life revolves around their pleasure scale. Now, I think that the value of the world that says there is no fear of God before my eyes is slowly creeping into the church. Where rather than living with a healthy, godly reverence for Him that would bring a humble submission to a loving God, we evaluate God and church according to our pleasure scale. How much pleasure does God give me? What will God do for me? And we start making evaluations. The world's slogans have somehow come into the church. You owe it to yourself. Love yourself. Be your own best friend. And so churches have become self-help programs to meet felt needs rather than, my life exists to give God pleasure and glory. The tables have now been turned. That's how many people approach Jesus Christ. We ask them, do you want joy? Do you want peace? Of course they do. So we say, well, accept Jesus. Wait a minute. You don't accept Jesus. Jesus accepts you. The Bible says God will accept you in the Beloved because of Jesus. You can receive Him as your Lord and Savior. That's the smartest move you'll ever make. But we somehow twist the tables and think that God exists for my pleasure. Back in the 1830s, a little girl, a British girl, was going to school with a private tutor. Her name was Vicky. She became Queen Victoria. And little Victoria was studying, and that day her lesson was on the monarchy of England. And she studied the genealogical charts, and her tutor told her and showed her name in the records, showing that Victoria would be the next Queen of England. Now, she she had no clue up to this point. For the first time, this little girl discovered... The next queen who sits on the throne will be me when I grow up. First thing she did is wept. And then she turned to her tutor and said, I will be good. I'll be a good queen. The knowledge of her lofty position to serve the people motivated her to want to do right. And those who fear the Lord, saying, My lofty position is a child of the king, Oh, I want to serve him. I want to do good. That's the motivation. So the fear of the Lord is prominent. Secondly, the fear of the Lord is preeminent. And I draw your attention to the text itself. The fear of the Lord is the, notice, the beginning of knowledge. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, when you think of beginning, you think of where you start and then leave. You have a starting point, it's a foundation, but eventually you'll graduate from that starting point, and as you move on chronologically, you'll move on from stage to stage, and I guess you begin with the fear of God, and then you leave it and go on to something else. That's not what it means. It does not mean the beginning of a time. The word beginning here means first in order of place, rank, value, or importance, So it could be translated, the fear of the Lord is the chief part of knowledge. Or, the fear of the Lord is the first controlling principle. One translation says, the fear of Jehovah is the summit of all knowledge. It's the place we begin, and is the place we abide. And if you know anything, or are wise in anything, you never leave the fear of the Lord. If you do, you become what the Bible calls foolish. And so Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, who wrote this text, who left it all and started searching in all different directions. He wrote about it in his own personal journal, the book of Ecclesiastes. I tried women, I tried song, I tried parties, I tried vegetables, I tried everything. Finally, he says, now all has been heard and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, he said. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, the smartest thing you'll ever do is to constantly live with the highest priority in life, a fear of God. The smartest thing you can do. Now, when you do that, you will be fulfilled. But that is a byproduct. If you want a fulfilling life, If you want happiness, you'll not find it by seeking a fulfilling life or seeking happiness. If you want fulfillment, you'll do it God's way. Or you might say, keep the main thing the main thing. And if the main thing is the fear of God, if you keep that all through your life, then life will fall exactly where it's supposed to fall. I found something that I thought was enlightening. It never dawned on me until I read this survey done by a polling organization of Americans. And, you know, polls are being done all the time. I like to find them and read them. They're indicators up to a point. And uh, they asked Americans of different areas of the country, educational backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, on and on and on, this question, what are you looking for most in life? Now, they expected answers like, well, I want to have a job that pays so much a year. Or I want a nice house in this neighborhood. Or I want my kids to go to this school. Some material kind of an answer. This is what they found. The top three things that people want in life were love, joy, and peace. The reason I say, wow, that's amazing, is that's exactly what Galatians says the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and then long suffering and all of the others. The very things that people want and ache for in life, God says, I want to give them to you, but they are a byproduct of keeping the main thing, the main thing, the fear of the Lord is the chief part of knowledge and wisdom. I like to look at life as lived on two planes. It keeps things balanced for me. The two planes are a vertical plane, our relationship Godward. The second plane is a horizontal plane, our relationship's manward. These planes intersect. Now, most people, I find, live on the horizontal plane. Most of our lives we do, but unfortunately, that's where we live all of our lives for some people. Well, I want to get this relationship right, and I want that, and I've got to make sure I get this and this over here. And we seek every everything else on the horizontal plane. And we neglect the vertical. My contention, and the Bible would contend it, that if you are okay this way, vertically, everything will be okay this way. Jesus put it this way, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else that you need will be added to you. We find that all of our relationships are out of whack because we're seeking life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and keep the chief part of your knowledge and wisdom, a relationship with God, and that is aligned, you'll find that horizontal plane also comes aligned along with it. It's the chief part of knowledge. A successful industrialist was speaking to a group of executives. He said, I have found there's two things most difficult to get people to do. First, To think. Second, to do things in order of importance. To do things in order of importance. To keep a list of priorities and live life accordingly. Paul put it this way. He said, there's one thing that I do. Forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I keep my eyes fixed where they ought to be fixed. And I live by priorities. I'm always looking for that prize in Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of Billy Sunday? Anybody? Raise your hand if you've heard of Billy Sunday. Okay, you get a prize today. God bless you. (laughs) Billy Sunday, before he was an evangelist, and he was an evangelist in the early 1900s in this country, was a professional baseball player. And he was making his way up through the ranks, he became converted. When he was a brand new Christian, an older Christian kind of took him aside, put his arm around him and counseled him. He said, William, there's three things in life you must never forget to do. And if you will remember these three things, no one will ever be able to write backslider after your name. Number one, he said, take 15 minutes of your day and listen to God. By reading the Bible. Then, William, take the next 15 minutes of your day and talk to God. That's prayer. Then he said, you must find 15 minutes in that day somewhere to talk to others about God. Witness for Christ. That made such an impression on young Billy Sunday. He eventually did become a great evangelist. God honored his ministry. God blessed him because, I believe, he kept those priorities. And even when he was famous and he was getting telegrams and letters from important people, he would never open his mail or attend a communication until first he spent time with God, listened to God in the Bible, prayed to God devotionally, and then he would open his mail, but he always found time each day to share the gospel with others. What's your master passion? What drives you? What is most important? To you. Now don't say, well, God is, unless He really is. And if He is, it'll be evident. Your day will show that you carve out time for the most important aspect of life, and that is a relationship with God. And when the fear of the Lord does become preeminent, pleasing God becomes predominant, you will find that the result is all those things that Americans wish they had. Love joy, and peace. Finally, and we'll end with this, the fear of the Lord is productive. Fearing God, living in the fear of the Lord, produces something. There is a difference between doing God's will and doing what many do, that is, my will in God's name, yeah, I prayed about it. I never waited for an answer or got direction, but yeah, I'm just going I think I feel I'll There's a big difference between doing God's will and your will in God's name. The difference results. You get results when you fear the Lord. It's productive. There's a number of things that fearing the Lord will do. Number 1, it will keep you from evil. Now, I know that you won't be able to turn to all these scriptures. Maybe you will if you've got a fastest finger in the west, but I'm going to share some of those tenets of the book of Proverbs. You can write them down and maybe look them up for memory in the future. It will keep you from evil. Proverbs 16:6. 6. "By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil." Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride, arrogance in the evil way." Well, how does that work? Easy. You're afraid of displeasing God. And you know that sin displeases God. And you're afraid of the consequences of going down that path because of spiritual, emotional, and even physical destruction. And you say, forget that. I'm not going to do that. It'll help you depart from evil. Case in point, Joseph. Here's a young guy in Egypt, he's an Israelite, he's been sold as a slave to the Egyptians. He gets stuck in this guy's house named Potiphar, because Joseph is so faithful, he becomes sort of like the boss, second in command of all that Potiphar owns. And he's in charge of all the servants. Well, Potiphar's wife was a bit neglected, because Potiphar was a busy executive, type A personality, never cared for his wife. So there's young Joseph at home watching over the affairs of the home during the day and Potiphar's wife kind of stares at him and gets all goo-goo-eyed over him. And she makes a pass at him and she's very aggressive. She grabs him by the lapels and says, Come to bed with me. That's aggressive. Joseph says no. And he kept saying no. One day she grabbed him and said, Lie with me. Here's Joseph's response. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He lived in the fear of the Lord. He knew that I live for God. I don't want to displease God. I know what the consequences of this would be. Temporary pleasure. But it would be a lot worse, the negative consequences. I'm not going to sin against God. It kept him from evil. A young boy's favorite pastime was catching frogs out by his pond, the stream out back. That is, he tried to catch frogs, he'd get close, and these things seemed to have eyes everywhere, they just kind of elude him. Later on, as he grew up, he found out the frog's secret. The optical field of perception of a frog is like a clean blackboard. The only images that a frog receives are those that directly concern him, like food for survival or natural enemies of the frog, the frog can just zero in on those natural enemies. That means that frogs are never distracted by that which is not important because of their makeup. They just can see and perceive an enemy and they're out of there. That's generally how it works. The fear of the Lord, in a spiritual sense, does much the same thing. It gives you new eyes, new sensitivities. You are involved in a situation, and your spirit becomes sensitive to it. Red flags go up. flashers sort of go on in your spirit. And you go, warning, warning, stay away. And you think, this is not smart. I could displease God. Secondly, the fear of God will prolong your life. You say, how is that? Well, if it keeps you from evil you can see how it would prolong your life. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27, The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. There are many people who, because of their wickedness, and their lives, quick. Because of their alcoholic problem or drug problem, because of their sexual promiscuity, may contract a sexually transmitted disease. Also, the fear of God will keep a person from the judgment of God as God would pour it out on other people. Remember Noah? It says that Noah, even though everybody laughed at him, he prepared an ark for the saving of his household, Hebrews tells us, because he was moved with godly fear. He was moved with godly fear, so it will prolong your life. Another scripture that comes to mind is the commandments, where it says, children, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the earth. You say, does that mean that every child who honors father and mother will live to be... No, it doesn't mean that at all. But think about it in the Jewish context of the Old Testament. What was the penalty for in the camp of Israel coming up against father and mother and opening, openly rebelling against them? Capital punishment. That's why Paul said, it's the first commandment with a promise. You want a short life? Just lip off in the camp of Israel to mom and dad. You want a long life? Honor them. It will keep you from evil, it will keep you from judgment, it will prolong your days. Thirdly, it will increase the quality of your life. There's a lot of scriptures I could give you, so I'm just going to sum it up under that title. Fearing the Lord will up your quality of life. In that, it will give you confidence, and it will make your life overflowing. It says in Proverbs 22, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Now I want you to turn with me to a scripture in Proverbs chapter 14, because there are two verses of scripture that talk about this, the quality of life, and they're next to each other. Proverbs 14. Verse 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence And his children will have a place of refuge. Now, think about that for a minute. The fear of the Lord will increase the quality of your life in that you will live confidently. Wouldn't you like to live confidently? Knowing that God has promised you what He's promised you, and you can just go through life trusting that God knows best. I think of Abraham. There's a guy who lived confidently. God said, Abraham, your son Isaac will bless the world. I'm going to propagate the nation through him. Yet, God told him a little bit later, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him. Kill him. That seemed so strange to Abraham. He thought, how could that happen? How can I kill my son? And yet God's going to propagate the nation through him. He'll be dead. How could he do it? Well, here he was out there, and he took the knife... And the angel stopped him, and God said, Stop, Abraham, for now I see that you fear God, in that you have not withheld your only son from me. Hebrews tells us that Abraham thought if he's dead, God will even raise him up from the dead. He was confident that no matter what, he would be God's man in this situation and obey God implicitly. General Jackson, it was said, feared God and nobody else. And when the Confederate troops had fallen back at Bull Run, General Lee, to rally his troops, told his men, Keep your eyes on Jackson, for he is like a stone wall. Hence, Jackson got the name Stonewall Jackson, because it is said he feared God and nobody else. You know, if you do fear God, you don't have to be afraid of anybody else. The fear of man brings the snare, the Bible says. And if you kneel before God and you are submitting to Him, you can stand before anybody. Now look at verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn away one from the snares of death. Again, It will increase the quality of your life. You'll have an overflowing life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Have it to the full. I was reading an article that came from the San Francisco newspaper, Chronicle, about a guy when he was young who found a five dollar bill on the sidewalk. And he was resolved that from that time on he would never lift his eyes while he was walking. The article said that Over the years, he's accumulated, among other things, 29,516 buttons, 54,172 pins, 12 cents, a bent back and a miserly disposition. But the article said he's lost something, too. He's lost the smiles of friends coming his way, the beauty of the blue sky, the dazzling stars. He was not looking in the right direction. He was looking down. Well, God has come that your fountain might overflow. And by the fear of the Lord comes all of those beautiful, godly consequences, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, or the fruit of the Spirit. And so we sing that song, fix your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Fourthly, the fear of God will motivate you to witness. It will motivate you to tell others about Christ. Now, this doesn't come to us from the book of Proverbs, but Paul writes in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the fear of the Lord, the New King James says, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, if there is a negative aspect to the fear of the Lord, it's here. In fact, the Greek word is phabos, knowing the phobia of the Lord. And the only phobia that we have is knowing that people turn their back on on God and will suffer the consequences. We want to persuade them. We love them and we love God and we want to seek to turn people toward God because we know of the terror that they will face. Jesus Christ Himself said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The words of our loving Savior. We are motivated then to turn people because of the fear of God. So as we close, ask yourself, what is prominent, preeminent, predominant in your life? What do you value? What is your master passion? What do you seek after? God is calling out. God is offering wisdom. I want to close with a couple of verses right here. Verse 24. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. This is wisdom talking, wisdom personified as the writer would give it. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated the knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The guiding principle of your life, what you value the most... You must ask yourself what it is. There was a man who loved books. I can relate to that. I love books. I love to read. And this guy loved old books, and I love old books. He liked to collect them, and I'd like to collect them, but they usually cost too much. This guy had quite a collection of old books. He met a man who had just sold a Bible that was in his attic of his ancestral home that had been there for generations. The guy just got rid of it. And so they had this conversation about the book, and you know, his friend said, Well, I got rid of it. I couldn't read it. It said in the front it was printed by Guten something. The book lover held his heart. Not Gutenberg. He said, Yeah, that's it. Gutenberg. He said, Man, that's like one of the first books ever published. A copy just sold a couple weeks ago for $2 million. The guy said, well, this thing wouldn't be worth $2. A guy named Martin Luther had scribbled all through it in German. (laughs) Ouch! How odd that our culture places such a high value on stupid things things that have no eternal value, things that will not be productive like the fear of God, and we would minimize that which is of the highest value. So if you want your life to count, you want to live wisely, you begin and you remain in the reverential awe that produces humble submission to a loving God. Father, we want to continue and abide in that place of a healthy fear of the Lord which you said is knowledge and is the chief part of wisdom. Lord, there are many role models around us that are not smart ones, that are not wise ones. They are foolish role models. And yet we seek to emulate our life and pattern our life after that which is valueless rather than hold with true value the knowledge of God and wisdom that comes from God. Help us, O Lord to readjust our priorities. And as the fear of the Lord is prominent, may it be preeminent in our own lives that it might be productive. In Jesus' name, amen.